Hello, and welcome back to what will be our final episode of the Whale Pod series for this year here on Seize the Day. I know, it's very sad, but as always, we have a great episode lined up for you. Today, Duke students Lillian Dukes, Franny Oppenheimer, and Huang Tang explore the story of the North Atlantic right whale, one of the world's most endangered large whale species, with fewer than 400 individuals remaining. They speak with Dr. Amanda Bradford, Dr. Caroline Good, and PhD student Logan Pallon about the life history and ecology of these whales and some of the current challenges they are facing. Like so many of the stories you have heard here on our Whale Pod series, the North Atlantic right whales are struggling to survive because of our actions. We're hopeful that by telling their stories here on Seize the Day, we can help bring awareness to these species and their plight. We hope you enjoy listening. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature recently updated their red list of critically endangered species to include Eubalina glacialis, commonly referred to as the North Atlantic right whale. The North Atlantic right whale, cousin to the cryptic North Pacific right whale and the prolific Southern right whale, is unfortunately no stranger to this list. Although a 1935 international ban on whaling right whales, a moniker they originally earned by being the right whale to hunt, was the first of many attempts to save their population from extinction, human activity has again reduced the North Atlantic right whale population to around 400. That is one step away from extinction. Join me, Lily Dukes, and my partners, Franny Oppenheimer and Haoyang Tang, three Duke students who have made it our mission to investigate the current status and conservation efforts of the North Atlantic right whale, the right whale to save. Before we discuss the current threats the North Atlantic right whales face, an important question one may ask is, why do we protect whales in the first place? Dr. Amanda Bradford, a scientist at the Pacific Islands Fishery Science Center, explained why protection is important. Amanda, what can you tell me about the importance of conservation? We have to make sure that people do understand or or place a value on marine mammals and whatever species we're trying to protect. I think the answer to that question really depends on the values of each of us as individuals. And so for the work that I do at NOAA Fisheries, we value maintaining each and every population of whales as what we call functioning units of their ecosystem. So In other words, for an ecosystem to be healthy, each part of it needs to be able to survive and thrive at sustainable levels. And those healthy marine ecosystems will benefit us. Like they give us food to eat, they give us beautiful places to visit, and they give us like amazing animals to look at. So um, depending on who you are as an individual, one or more of those specific things may be more important, especially for these really small populations. Once they're gone, they're gone. You can't get them back. And then there could be this cascade of things that happen because a key part of an ecosystem is missing. Indeed, whales are a key part of their ecosystem. Despite their large appearance, North Atlantic right whales can grow up to be 50 feet long and 70 tons of gray blueberry whale. North Atlantic right whales feed on tiny, tiny organisms, copepods, krill, and zooplanktons. They then give back nutrients by releasing what biologists call picoplants, 
that this vast outpouring of excrement that are reaching iron and nitrogen to the surface water. These nutrients fertilize phytoplankton, small ocean plants that only live in the surface water, that in turn serve as food source for zooplankton and small fish. Consequently, whales play a critical role in this cycle, and as the number of gray whales decline, the number of krill and fish also decline. Furthermore, phytoplankton fertilized by whales also consume thousands of tons of carbon dioxide and generate over 50% of oxygen on the Earth. So, the recovery of North Atlantic right whales proves to be another right way to fight climate change. Lily, what can you tell us about the North Atlantic right whale? Okay, Haoyang, if you were given a chart of whales, could you pick out the right whale to hunt? In other words, what makes a whale right to hunt in the first place? To answer this question and many more, I turn to Dr. Caroline Good, a scientist for the National Marine Fisheries Services, Office of Protected Resources, Large Whale Team. Dr. Good's research and policy work has focused on North Atlantic right whales as they need the most help. She explained to me why that was the case. Dr. Good, I'm really curious, why is this whale the right whale? So right whales are a really interesting species. Um, <laughs> they were one of the earliest species that was hunted on a large scale and then almost sort of an industrial scale really early on because they have very, very thick blubber and are just slightly positively buoyant as a result. So if you are kill one, if you harpoon one, it, they tend to float, which means that you're gonna recover the, the carcass and be able to harvest that blubber for oil. And also they have extremely long baleen. They can have baleen that's up to six feet long. And so as a result, that was sort of, baleen was almost the, the plastics of its day. You know, it could be molded into buggy whips and corset stays and all sorts of things that were <laughs> in demand back in the day. And, um, and so that, that it was called whalebone, the baleen was called whalebone. So the whalebone and the whale oil were both very valuable products. And as a result, you got two for one in a right whale. Not only were the whales themselves good resources, but as I understand it, habitat and behavior makes them an even easier target. Also tend to have a more coastal distribution. They stay closer to shore than other large whales. They're not as fast as a blue whale or a fin whale. They're, you know, so th there's a lot of reasons why they were um, targeted. They were easier to find, easier to catch, and, and easier to harvest products from. So that's why one of the reasons they were hunted so early on and across the entire North Atlantic, both in Europe and in uh, North America as well. In other words. A slow, buoyant, and resource-rich whale? Unfortunately, these are the qualities that made the North Atlantic right whale right to hunt. Because of whaling, we have seen their numbers shrink from an estimated tens of thousands to hundreds, and their habitat range shrink from the entire Atlantic Ocean to primarily the eastern coast of the United States and Canada. By now, some of you may be thinking, but wait, I've never worn a whalebone corset or lit a whale oil lamp. And although North Atlantic right whales aren't purposefully targeted as they were before for their resources, modern day human activity, that is entanglement in fishing gear, vessel strikes and climate change continues to threaten them. Dr. Good explains that the whale's unique behavior again makes them especially susceptible to these often fatal run-ins with human activity. And the main motivation for their behavior? Food. 
Dr. Good, I'm really curious, what does food have to do with all of this? So they have this super long baleen and they are, are different from many of the other oracles who are lunge feeders. So when you think of humpback whales or fin whales, you know, they'll sort of lunge and open up their mouth and close it really quick and then strain out the water. But right whales, similar to bowheads, are ram feeders. In other words, think of North Atlantic right whales as giant Roombas. They open their mouths and swim slowly through huge patches of zooplankton, which gets filtered through their sieve-like baleen. To maintain their body size, these patches of food have to be substantial, which is a source of vulnerability for these more passive feeders. So they essentially are to some degree um, at the mercy of the ocean, not only to produce this food in generally enough abundance to support them, but also they are at the mercy of the physical oceanography and different tidal factors that aggregate that food into these super, super dense patches mm -hmm. that enable them um, to be able to forage in a way that's, that's energetically efficient. But hidden amongst these dense patches of zooplankton and within the North Atlantic right whale's habitat at large lies a major threat non-mobile fishing gear. Inhabiting coastal areas along Canada and the United States where snow crab and lobster fishing activities especially are popular, the North Atlantic right whale's passive and relatively non-picky foraging strategy makes them especially vulnerable to entanglement with the floating fishing lines and buoys. In their 30-year retrospective, monitoring North Atlantic right whale Eubelina glacialis entanglement rates published in 2012, Amy Knowlton and colleagues found that 59% of the 629 individual whales they surveyed had been entangled more than once in their lifetime. More than once. Whales, they are unable to shed the gear could die of injury, infection, and starvation. Both living and dead North Atlantic right whales have been documented with ropes through their mouths that wrapped around flippers and flukes. Dr. Good will explain how the National Marine Fisheries Service convened the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team in 1972 to develop a plan to reduce harm due to entanglement. Dr. Good, can you explain more about what they do? The policy process with regards to entanglement-related injuries tends to start with the take reduction team for, for the North Atlantic right whale. And at that team, you know, it is where the agency is able to bring together fishermen and scientists and conservation and geo representatives, uh, folks from state um, fisheries rep organizations, fishing associations, sort of everybody into one room, mm -hmm. all the different stakeholders and groups that have um, either expertise or a vested interest in what is, is happening or involved in what's happening with entanglement mm -hmm. and try to work through what we know, what needs to happen, what we can do and what everybody can essentially live with to be able to allow fishing to continue and at the same time give the conservation level that's necessary and the risk reduction level that's necessary for that species to recover. Closing fisheries jeopardize the fishing industry. In Meyer's article, Ropeless Fishing to Prevent Large Whale Entanglements, Ropeless Consortium Report published in Marine Policy in 2019. Meyer pointed out that in 2019, fishermen have repeatedly requested access to fishing in these areas during closure periods. 
and Canadian government announced a reduction in the areas subject to mandatory fishery closures after consultations with stakeholders, which include the fishing industry. However, the result of the reduction in management areas was eight deaths by August in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, Canada in 2019. Modifying fishing gear is also a method to protect North Atlantic right whales. In Canada, fishermen have already used weak links in fishing gear to minimize the harm entanglements cause to the right whales. When right whales struggle when they are entangled, they are more likely to shed off the entangled ropes with weak links. And the ground line that connects all the lobster traps must be buried under the bottom of the ocean. For a species that has only 400 individuals left, Modifying fishing gear is not enough. Entanglements still happen and kill the right whales. Seasonal closure of fisheries is still necessary. In Davis and Brilliant's article, Mass Human Cost Mortality Spurs Federal Action to Protect Endangered North Atlantic Right Whales in Canada, published in Marine Policy in 2019, states that there is currently no effective management tool that allows fishing to continue unabated. But Myers stated in his article, there might be a technological solution that can protect North Atlantic right whale while leaving fishing industries intact. Roleplace fishing gear is an emerging technology that uses electromagnetic waves to detect position of the traps instead of using ropes. If this technology is developed and proven effective, closure of fishery is not necessary. Therefore, leaves the fishery industries intact and protecting vulnerable marine wildlife. Although this technology is not ready to be used yet, Meyer expressed the urgent need for developing this technology to eliminate the threat of entanglement while fulfilling fishermen's desire to reopen the fisheries. However, Dr. Good explained that the mandates of the take reduction team are such that they can only focus on entanglement and not ship strikes, another threat North Atlantic right whales face as they inhabit coastal areas of high vessel traffic and fishing activities. She also explained that for reasons unknown, it is difficult for these whales to avoid fast coming vessels and the resulting strikes can leave them with fatal wounds. More unfortunate still, in the report, Implementing conservation measures for the North Atlantic right whale, considering the behavioral ontogeny of mother calf pairs, published in 2018, Dana Cusano and her team report that mother calf pairs, a key demographic in trying to restore populations, are especially vulnerable to ship strikes due to their surface dwelling behavior in the calving season. Hyung, what are countries doing in response to whale vessel strikes? Uh, yes. As part of an international effort, Canada and the United States have established a series of mandatory seasonal management areas since 2017 based on the seasonal migration route of the species to protect the species from ship strikes. In addition to seasonal closure of lobster fisheries in Canada and in the United States, there have also been seasonal speed restrictions for vessels in the management areas. Furthermore, in 2008, the National Marine Fisheries Services passed a rather groundbreaking ship strike reduction rule, which required vessels to significantly lower their speed in certain locations along the East Coast 
and during certain parts of the year in alignment with the habits of marine life. Dr. Good explained the rule was so successful in reducing whale and vessel collisions that it has since become an international standard. But Franny, have all of these efforts been enough for our lovely North Atlantic right whale? With their current population numbers, it doesn't seem like so. The combined efforts of NMFs, commercial fisheries, and other stakeholders in reducing entanglement and ship strikes have overall been moderately successful. While their actions did correlate with an increase in North Atlantic right whale populations in the early 2000s, their populations have yet to truly rebound and recently have started to decline again. This unfortunate trend has caused scientists to investigate how climate change has impacted the North Atlantic right whale. Displacement is also an issue for these whales, primarily because they feed on tiny and vulnerable prey. Krill need a certain water temperature to make sure their eggs sink to the ocean floor, and they need sea ice to shelter freshly hatched larvae. Without these things, they die. Copepods have chitinous exoskeletons, which could be damaged by ocean acidification. They also experience stress under warming temperatures, making their egg yields smaller and weaker. Because much of the whale's diet needs cooler waters to survive, the food sources have been moving north, and the southern populations have been dying off. This means that North Atlantic right whales have to move farther north to find food, which takes them into the range of shipping strikes. A study conducted by Kubrick et al. in 2019 titled Saving the North Atlantic Right Whale in a Changing Ocean, Gauging Scientific and Law and Policy Responses for Ocean and Coastal Management Journal, suggests that climate warming may lead to substantial northward shifts in the North Atlantic right whale's summer feeding habits. This means that the right whales will travel north of protected areas where there are no regulations to protect them from entanglements or ship strikes. Therefore, the aforementioned seasonal management method might not work effectively. In 2017, food-motivated displacement had grave consequences for North Atlantic right whales. The summer of 2017 saw large aggregations congregating in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, a region of Canada that did not have the North Atlantic right whale protections, as other areas did, as North Atlantic right whales had never been seen in significant numbers in the region. The unexpected large number of North Atlantic right whales, a phenomena scientists attribute to a northward shift of their foodstuff, sadly led to increased vessel strikes. A total of 17 deaths in both Canada and the United States motivated officials to declare that North Atlantic right whales underwent an unusual mortality event, as 3% of their population had died within a year. With a significant decrease in their populations in such a short time, scientists could only hope that calving rates would attempt to replenish North Atlantic right whale populations. Such was not the case. In 2018, zero calves were born. This alarming statistic furthered research into the mating and calving behaviors of North Atlantic right whales. Franny, what can you tell us about their mating timeline? The mating and feeding timeline of North Atlantic right whales starts in the late spring. The animals feed in the Great South Channel until early summer, then along the southwestern Scotian Shelf in late summer and fall. The whales then migrate to warm waters on the coast of Georgia and Florida for the winter, mating from December through March. They have year-long pregnancies and usually give birth every three to four years, though now that time has been extended to six to seven years due to lack of nutrients. My name is Logan Colleen. 
This is Logan Pauline, a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow and a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz. He's going to tell us a little about general whale feeding and mating behaviors. All these whales are removed, you're, you're really rare. And being rare is going to make it more challenging to find a mate. And if you are living in an environment where you're incredibly nutritionally stressed, you're not going to reproduce. But that also might potentially increase your susceptibility of not returning the next year. So these are all different aspects of, of what we try and understand in our system. This is similar to the aforementioned timeline of the North Atlantic right whale. As they die out and their migration routes and timings change, it becomes harder and harder for them to find mates. There's estimated to only be 85 actively reproductive females in existence. 40% of the population is female, which means that there are much fewer females than males, and it's difficult to find mating pairs. According to a 2004 paper by Charles H. Green and Andrew J. Pershing for the Ecological Society of America, the growth rate of North Atlantic right whale populations began to decline in the 1990s, and despite conservational efforts, falling calving rates in North Atlantic right whales may have an irreversible impact on the population. Right whales have been the target of human destruction since humans realized their potential. They were hunted to near extinction and have been in danger of entanglement, strikes, starvation, and dwindling mating opportunities ever since. Conservation efforts, including modified fishing gear and shipping routes, have been implemented in recent years, but the species has not experienced the comeback we'd hoped for. Right whales are currently so close to extinction, it's imperative that we give future generations the opportunity to experience their power. We need to act now, change our policies, and focus on conservation before it's too late. Thanks to Dr. Amanda Bradford, Dr. Caroline Good, and Logan Pauline for allowing us to interview them, and Rennie Tyson Moore for general guidance. Thanks especially to the North Atlantic right whales for fighting the good fight on behalf of our world. Citizens can help protect this wonderful species by following NMFS's rules that prohibit being closer than 500 yards in both air and sea from an individual, raising educational awareness of the species, and supporting local efforts to protect their habitat at large. For more information on specific numbers and stats, go to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration website at www.fisheries.noaa.gov. Thank you. Today's episode was written and produced by Lillian Dukes, Franny Oppenheimer, and Huang Tang, and was edited by Brandon Gertz. All opinions and views expressed during the episode are of the speakers and do not represent Duke, NOAA, UC Santa Cruz, or any other party. If you want to learn more about this week's episode or other series episodes, please check out our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at seize the day pod. Our theme music was written and recorded by Joe Morton. Our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Jeff Pretty provides us with technical support. And that's a wrap. Many thanks to everyone who helped create and produce these episodes, particularly to our amazing interview subjects for sharing their expertise with us and to the very talented students that participated in Duke Marine Lab's 2020 Marine Mammal Summer Course for doing such a great job on these episodes. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.